The biography of a book is not the biography of the man who wrote it. Except that, in the case of Homer and his poems, one goes hand in hand with the other, since it is impossible to know which came first. The blind bard who sang of the destruction of the Trojan city, and of the longing of a Greek king for his home, or the stories of the lure of war and the search for peace, which required an author to justify their existence. Writers and their work establish curious relationships in the eyes of their readers. There are books that, through inspired wording, conjure up a lifelike character who overshadows whoever the author may have really been. Don Quixote and Cervantes, Hamlet and Shakespeare are cases in point. There are writers whose lives, as Oscar Wilde said of himself, are the recipients of their genius, and whose books are only the product of their talent. Homer and his works belong to the former category, but there have been times in their long history when readers chose to consign them to the latter. No one owns Homer, not even the best of his readers. Each one of our readings is done through layers of previous ones that pile upon the page like seams in a rock, until the original text, if there ever was so pure a thing, is hardly visible so that when we think, upon closing Homer, Ah, now I've made the Iliad, or the Odyssey, mine. What we mean is that we've made ours a story that many others have long annotated, recast, interpreted, adapted, and that, with their testimonies echoing more or less loudly in our ears, we've tried to impose our tastes and prejudices upon a cacophony of one-man bands, like Keats first looking into Chapman's Homer, or Joyce hustling Ulysses through the crowded streets of Dublin. In this attempt, strict adherence to official chronologies isn't useful. Readings influence one another back and forth across time, and we mustn't accuse St. Augustine of anachronism for studying Homer under Goethe's guidance, or Heraclitus for allowing himself to be prejudiced by the commentaries of George Steiner. Not only does this palimpsest of readings hide from our eyes the original text, or what most scholars agree is the original text, it is said that an English divine, Richard Whateley, waving the King James Bible at a meeting of his diocesan clergy, roared out, This is not the Bible. Then, after a long pause. This, gentlemen, is only a translation of the Bible. Except for an increasingly small group of scholars upon whom has been bestowed the grace of knowing ancient Greek, the rest of us read not Homer, but a translation of Homer. In this our fortunes vary. Some may be lucky enough to fall upon Alexander Pope's, or Robert Fagel's, Others may be doomed to T.S. Brandreth's literal version of 1816, or to the pompous 1948 rendition by F.L. Lucas. Translation is, in its nature, a questionable craft, and it is very strange how, in certain cases, works such as the Iliad and the Odyssey, made out of words and therefore seemingly dependent for their success on how those precise words are used, can dispense with them, and come across in languages that had not even been invented when the poems first came into being. 
menen aedithea, peleadeo Achilleos. Sing, O goddess, the wrath of Pelian Achilles, is a more or less literal English version of the Iliad's first line. But what did Homer mean by Aedi? Sing? What by Thea, goddess? What by Menin, wrath? Virginia Woolf noted that it is vain and foolish to talk of knowing Greek, since in our ignorance we should be at the bottom of any class of schoolboys, since we do not know how the words sounded, or where precisely we ought to laugh, or how the actors acted, and between this foreign people and ourselves there is not only difference of race and tongue, but a tremendous breach of tradition. Even among modern languages the tremendous breach of tradition persists. Wrath in English, with its old-fashioned ring.